is July 13th, 1977. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Chris Rock used to have a bit about how he grew up in a neighbourhood that was so dangerous you could get shot while you were getting shot. And that sentiment was in evidence in the real world, perhaps less comedically on this day in 1977, when a massive blackout in New York City led to a crime wave so out of control that the New York Post reported even the looters were being mugged. Yes, as a result of lights going out across the city for 25 hours, the result of lightning striking a crucial substation in New York State. Arsonists set more than one 1,000 fires and looters ransacked 1,600 stores in a little over a day. Yeah, well, this occurred at the peak of the Scuzzbucket New York era. Just two years (laughs) earlier, the city had actually run out of money. They were on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. And a large part of that was due to the fact that the city had become regarded as so dangerous that millions of middle-class people had fled, draining the taxation base. So there was a deficit of $750 million just two years earlier in 1975. And the only way for the city to avoid declaring bankruptcy was by turning control of its finances over to New York State. It was later granted a gigantic federal loan, but it came with stringent conditions, such as huge layoffs of city employees, which Mm. drove up the already high unemployment rate, and made cuts to emergency services that only made the crime problem worse. So this was really the nadir of New York, at least in the public imagination. There had actually been a relatively similar blackout in 1965, but it had happened during the daytime when everyone was still in their shops. Everyone who worked in a shop was still there. And so there was this comparatively sort of good-natured response to it, which reminds me a bit of how people responded in London to the 7-7 bombing where everyone kind of suddenly after being hugely antagonistic towards one another on a day-to-day basis as Londoners, everyone was suddenly friendly. And it seems like that was the case in 1965, but rather less so in 1977. Yeah, the 1965 blackout was so twee that it actually inspired a Doris Day rom-com called Where Were You When The Lights Went Out? That's how nice it was. The New York (laughs) Transit System actually put posters around afterwards thanking riders for their, quote, fine conduct in the face of delays and stalled trains, etc. Although... I would rather have hip-hop than Doris Day. And this day... In Why can't we have both? <laughs> you can have both. We're all working for a society where we Spotify can have both. Look at my Spotify playlist. You'll see we can have both. <laughs> uh, but given the choice. Um, and this day is often credited nowadays. I think I think Roman Mars might be responsible for this. There was an episode of 99% Invisible along mm. these lines. But anyway, in recent years, it's, it's regularly credited this date as being the moment that hip-hop took hold because a lot of the people rioting went to stores where they'd previously been able to afford a little bit of mixing equipment, a boombox, a microphone, and then stole loads of it and then sort of set up on street corners creating their own music. And from that, I'm not saying it's a good thing, I'm just saying from that we got a good thing, <laughs> arguably, which is the birth of hip-hop. And it must be said that Africa Bambata, who is often credited as being one of the people who really helped drive the development of hip-hop, he commented directly on this and said, Blackout 77 got nothing to do with hip-hop. Whoever came up with that is talking a load of BS. So <laughs> there are detractors <laughs> to that theory, but it's worth also digging into kind of the actual physical reality of what happened. You know, the sky 
skyline went entirely dark. I don't know if you guys have seen the photos, but mm. it's quite an eerie picture of that very familiar skyline that we're used to seeing completely lit up all night long, just completely black and subways and major transit hubs like Grand Central Terminal, obviously completely closed down because nothing could run anymore. And there was a baseball match being played at Shea Stadium and the Mets were forced to stop their game against the Chicago Cubs in the sixth innings. Just, you know, lights out. Everyone stopped playing, can't see anything. One New Yorker apparently exclaimed, it's the whole goddamned world, which I love as a New Yorker's response to, <laughs> to something like this. Didn't they actually finish that game like four months later? They did, and the Mets lost. Yeah. <laughs> which is still shorter than a game of American football. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it has to be said there was a quirkier side as well it wasn't all looting and rioting when the play stopped at Shea Stadium the 22,000 fans sang along with organist Jane Jarvis as they waited for news of what was going on to take their minds off the heat because the other thing is this was taking yeah. place during a heat wave she played White Christmas you know and there were lots of other there were lots of things 35 people were stranded overnight on the observation deck of the Empire State Building they wow. were bought sandwiches while they waited for oh, the lift to come back into service yeah, you say that's fun I'm not sure that's fun i'm not sure one night sleeping out under the stars the elevator doesn't work and you're on one of the the famously one of the world's tallest buildings i'm not Mate, sure that's a good feeling way off the edge <laughs> <laughs> i mean you're right there's a lot of like bonhomie um bars for example that couldn't serve food because the food had all gone off in the heat and the fridges didn't work anymore it essentially became sort of 24-hour drinking dens which must have mm. been quite amusing if you were in the more affluent parts of manhattan and some broadway shows carried on as well by flashlight including oh calcutta which was a nude review um, <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't use candles you've got to use torches <laughs> <laughs> and um 16 passers-by were harnessed to turn around the Wonder Wheel at Coney Island by hand to get the stranded passengers down from the top. (laughs) That is a a great little detail. But it must have been terrifying to Mm. be underground on the subway when all the lights go out. I know New Yorkers are stoic and dealt with it, but God, that's actually... I mean, it's a scary place to be in 1977 anyway. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was playing on people's minds was that this was against the backdrop of the Son of Sam murders. That was the serial killer David Berkowitz who was going around New York City killing people and leaving these mocking letters for police. He said that he was being directed by this dog named Sam to do these murders. So there was, you know, this playing on people's minds, as well as that enormous poverty and skyrocketing inflation and this swirling racial unrest. So that was kind of this tinderbox that was ready to be lit by kind of anything. I saw this quote from Jackie House, who was 16 at the time, and he said, when it's dark, you take everything you can get. Who wants to buy sneakers for $24? President Carter's not going to give us what we want. He's not giving us anything, so we have to take it. And I think that was that sort of sense of opportunism was what drove a lot of people to the streets. Lots of people went out and got their electronics and their DJ equipment and their white goods. But then the next wave of people just went out to get food because they didn't know when the lights were coming on again. But also there's this sort of obvious racial divide as well most of the people in manhattan who weren't doing the looting were white most of the people that were in the bronx and areas of harlem etc who were doing the looting were black and hispanic a marauding minority of poor blacks and hispanics time magazine called it and i mean i feel like nowadays of course it would be incumbent on journalists to point that out but just to leave it at that Mm. (laughs) rather than to examine what might be the racial injustices that are underpinning their desire to go out there and take whatever they can get is something that's strangely absent in in the journalism from the time you read it and you think oh this is all being written 
by middle class white people for middle class white people who would just be scared by what happened. But no one, not even the left leaning publications are saying, why are people so desperate that they'll take the earliest opportunity to have one over on the system like this? Yeah, one economist at Chase Manhattan Bank wrote an internal report arguing that the disorders brought to light deep-seated economic and social difficulties that can and should be addressed. But that was a really unusual bit of commentary, and most of it was, let's lock them up. It was actually the largest mass arrest in the city's history. 3,700 people at least were arrested, and they had to be stuffed into these overcrowded cells and precinct basements and other makeshift holding pens. They actually opened up the tombs, which was a famous jail in Lower Manhattan that had been closed in 1974 following riots there, just to stuff people in. And this was the moment that you can see as a foundational point that led ultimately in the 90s to the election of Rudolf Giuliani and his tough-on-crime approach to city policing. Yeah, the blackout on the whole was just another PR disaster for New York City. Because not only did you have this seeming lawlessness, these uncontrollable mobs running around with impunity, but also just the concept of a mass power outage in such a large city. Mm. It did nothing to combat the widespread impression that New York was basically at this point what would have been called at the time a third world city Mm. and an embarrassment to the nation. Come and visit New York as the uh, runway is plunged into darkness. You know, nowadays New York City has got so much appeal around the world. It's really, it's completely revamped its image. But putting yourself in the mindset of the time, it was seen as sort of a punchline for this city that was completely lawless, that was almost bankrupt, it was falling apart, and it was just famously disgusting. You know, there's all those famous photos of the subway cars covered in graffiti, you know, litter everywhere. There was only one murder victim that night, a chap called Dominic Sisconi, who was uh, 17 years old, who was hanging out with his brother Andrew and their friends in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, which was this old Italian neighbourhood. And he just actually finished a stint in prison and was out again. And amid all that mayhem and the fireworks that were going off, he got shot by, this is the only information the police had, a well-dressed person. Um, But you kind of feel that this was a thing that was going to happen to him in any case because he was bound up in kind of gangland activity. Yeah, it sounds like a mafia gig, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't even taking advantage of the situation. They were just, you know, professionally and competently carrying on with business as usual. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a job to do. Life as normal in New York. <laughs> Tomorrow. The people who made Star Trek said that they did not name him after Dr. Yeah. Spock. But, I f- but that's right. not true, is it? Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.